remember things. Um, many of you I have not met, and uh, you know, this is probably my third time in this setting with you guys, and so uh, my name is Daniel. Um, as Eric said, I am a student at Fuller. Last year I was at Talbot and I transferred over to Fuller. I'll be finishing my Master's in Divinity in December. Um, man, it's been a long journey. It's been, <laughs> it's been four years of just constant trudging along. Right now I'm in the middle of finals, and so it's been especially evident this past week. Um, the fatigue, the anxiety, the, the you know nervousness about grades and things like that. And so usually coming into these settings, like to preach, I'm pretty nervous, but today, to be honest, I'm quite excited to be able to speak to you guys on, on behalf of what the Lord um, kind of gave me this, these past few weeks, and it's, it's going to be a very personal message in, that, in the sense that I, I want to share a little bit about what he's, um, how this manifested in my life, and how he's kind of worked with me up, in, up until this point, but um, before we get into that, I kind of want to start with, we'll see if this works, I kind of want to paint like a, a picture, some some kind of imagination for what we're going to be talking about today. So I think I, I gave a slide. Um, so if you even want to close your eyes or if you want to read along on the screen, um, just to kind of paint your imagination to, to what we'll be talking about today. But um, just imagine you were raised in with little familiarity of Christian faith. You were curious but had rarely come into contact with the tradition. One day you decided to go to Our Lady... Uh, cathedral in Los Angeles, and I chose a Catholic church specifically because it paints the picture a little bit more since us evangelicals uh, don't have as much art in, in our buildings uh, <coughs> often. So so you went to the cathedral, and upon arriving, you were taken by the grandeur of the architecture, the magnitude of the building, and its art installations placed on every corner and crevice of the courtyard. On the outside, you cannot help but notice a cross that dominates the only section of glass that gives view to the inside of the building. You walk in. Upon entering, you notice that the pews are organized in such a way that leads to the altar placed in the middle. The pews are placed in the shape of a cross. You take a seat, only to notice that the man next to you is wearing a little cross lapel, and the woman on the other side has one on her necklace. The altar is still unprepared as it waits for the processional, remains clear minus a cross that peaks in the middle of it. The processional walks in. Congregation stands up, the choir and the clergy enter, preceded by somebody carrying the processional cross. They are singing a hymn. You look down at the service paper and read its opening words. We sing the praise of him who died, of him who died upon the cross. The sinner's hope let man deride, for this we count the world but loss. From what follows, you come to realize that you're witnessing a holy communion service, and this focuses on the death of Jesus. When the people around you go forward to the communion rail to receive the bread and wine, the minister speaks to them of the body and blood of Christ. The service ends with another hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to his blood. The congregation begins to disperse as the service has ended and you're puzzled about what you just witnessed. The repeated insistence by word and symbol on the centrality of the cross has been striking. Questions have arisen in your mind. Some of the language seem exaggerated. Do Christians really 
really for the sake of the cross, count the world but lost, and boast in it alone, and sacrifice any, everything for it, can Christian faith be accurately summed up as the faith of Christ crucified? What are the grounds, you ask, for the concentration on the cross of Christ? So this is adapted from um, a famous preacher from the 20th century named John Stott. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he was an evangelical preacher. He's quite prolific in his, both in his writing and his, in his work in ecumenical tra traditions and bringing the churches together and uniting them. But he wrote this book called The Cross of Christ. And uh, for many of you, if, if uh, you aren't familiar with, or you weren't here last time, uh, we were here as a church. We've been going through a series called Yes and Amen. Kind of what it looks like to live in a life of obedience um, in response to God's yes to us and our response to him, yes, as well. So today may seem a little bit counterintuitive uh, to that message of, of saying yes, because today we learn about how, or we'll talk about how do we maintain our yes and amen in the face of the greatest no. What I mean by this is that the focus of today's message is that at the center of our faith stands a cross. And this, in the first century context, was the greatest no, the greatest disillusionment, the greatest punishment, on a level that would be deemed as being cursed by God himself. Galatians uh, chapter 3 tells us that curses everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting from Isaiah. And it's precisely this greatest no that God has used to put to shame any other counterfeit yeses in our lives. Any counterfeit yeses that we are offered, that we convince ourselves of, or that we relentlessly pursue. All other yeses are shown to be what they are, foolishness and weakness. So Paul knew this, and he was aware of his context with the same sobriety that he was aware of himself and aware of the way God had planned to redeem all things. He was honest about the counterintuitive intuitiveness of the cross and its power and its hope how can it possibly come through a cross how can there be hope and power in this the greatest of all knows so I hope that this will become clear as we get into the text today um, we'll be we'll be talking about kind of that prevailing no in the cross that opens up the doorway to a great yes a great yes that leads us to nothing less than hope and so if you have your Bibles with you, would you please uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It'll be a familiar passage. First Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 17. Anybody want to read for us uh, verses 17 through 19? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 19 also? Yeah, thank you. 19? Yeah. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Thank you. So 
So hopefully your imaginations are captured by what we read. And if it was too boring, I'm sorry. Um, but it is at the center of our faith. And for, I mean, anyone who visits a, a Catholic church and even some Protestant churches, um, you'll immediately notice that's kind of all over the place. There's crosses on people's jewelry. There's crosses on the walls. And um, we celebrate the cross. And it's counterintuitive in the sense that this was used as a weapon to, um, of the greatest sort of punishment in the first century. And today we view it as the center symbol of, of hope. You've probably heard something like the expression, once you've hit rock bottom, you have nowhere to look but up. Have anyone heard anything like that? Yeah. yeah. So this is exactly where I see the cross. This is actually the, the center point of that expression. This is the lowest point that, that God could possibly get to. And the only place he would, was able to look up to was, was God the Father. Today's a little bit special for me. Um, it was exactly 11 years ago that I came to faith uh, as a 17-year-old who had no idea what he was doing. So in 2011, um, I was sitting in the church for the first time in, in a long time, and it was only a handful of times in my life that I'd ever been to a church. And I was, for all intents and purposes, just at the end of my rope. So my uncle today that I had mentioned, he and his family took me in in a, a time in my life where I was rubbing up against a lot of bad things. I was addicted to drugs, alcohol, hung out with um, the wrong kinds of people, gangs, and the people, basically the people I grew up with in my neighborhood. And this had landed me in situations that were dangerous and had people um, who were actively looking to, to, to either do something to me and harm me or my family. And so I took the opportunity, or not the opportunity, but the circumstances to go to Mexico and uh, completely cut ties with everything. I, I decided to stay over there with my family for a few months. In Mexico, I was hoping that I would get some, something of a fresh start or at least get away from the things that I was surrounded by. Um, and I found that because of my addictions, I ended up getting in trouble even over there. So that I, I was staying with the a part of my family that I would usually stay with. Um, and because I got into a certain situation in, in that hometown, um, I had people looking for me over there too. So I ended up having to move to another part of the city where um, the only part of my family that was Christian at the time uh, lived. So I stayed with them for about a month and a half. This was the first time that I actually come into uh, contact with the message of the gospel. Like, I had never really read I mean, I went to catechism, I was culturally Catholic growing up, um, none of it stuck. By the time I was 13, I said, like, this is not for me, I don't believe any of it. I remember having specific conversations with my mom, and we wouldn't really even go to church, so it wasn't anything that we practiced, per se. But my family sharing the gospel with me and kind of leading me through the scriptures and taking me to Bible studies or, or church, and I would go with them out of respect, it just made sense, and it was something that I knew I needed. More than anything, I knew I needed forgiveness. And uh, it wasn't even, at some point, it wasn't even the fact that um, I didn't believe. It was more so the fact that I, I didn't think I was ready to come into the faith. I thought I would be a hypocrite. I was like, I, I would need to sober up first, and then I'll come. Or I'll need to clean up my act, and then I'll come. And that's when, you know, simple enough concept, um, my family taught me about grace. And... Uh, how grace was afforded for us in the cross. 
And so I remember that really sticking clear with me and then them telling me that you won't be able to clean up until after you um, give your life over to him. So that one day at a church altar call, I had just decided to, um, to go up. I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but the, the pastor does an altar call and I asks if anyone wants to give their lives to Christ and I decided, um, let's go for it. And I remember walking out of that church and just thinking, like, I can't believe I'm a Christian. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> and uh, we celebrated with pizza that day. And that really sticks to my mind. The date sticks to my mind, what we celebrated with, my family who had introduced me to Christ. And, you know, uh, going on 11 years of faith now, I still resonate so much with what Paul expresses here as far as the counterintuitiveness of the cross. What made so much sense to me that those moments when I first came to faith 11 years ago, along the way, and if you guys have walked with him for long enough, you'll know that sometimes it doesn't make sense. As a matter of fact, there are seasons I'll press you to your cores, and God, this doesn't make sense. Why, why is this the way that you treat your friends? And so fast forward a little bit. Um, in 2016, because of a lot of circumstances, my parents' divorce and just issues with identity and a bad breakup and, you know, issues with relationships and friendships and stuff like that, I ended up relapsing and started uh, what was a one-year binge, um, just drinking every day. Uh, and this landed me in the hospital a couple times. I cut off all communications with everybody, decided I had nothing to do with, with pastoring. I received a call, like, close to when I came to faith. But at that point, I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with pastoral ministry. Life had gone rough. And the message was, take up your cross and follow me. And I decided to go the other way. Because it just didn't make sense to me. Fast forward a little bit after that, and Jesus meets me on the beach like he met Peter. And he asked me a question that was really important. Um, do you love me? And I said, well, God, you know I love you. I didn't stop believing in God. I didn't stop loving him, as a matter of fact. I blamed myself only. And that conversation was one that not only was for his sake, really, it was more so for my sake, to know that I had the capacity to love God. And that solidified a, a new commitment of go and feed my sheep. And the commitment was stronger after that, though it took a cross to get there. So maybe you found yourself in a similar boat at some point, or you're even there now. <coughs> it feels like you're, you're the one perishing, as the text says. And then the text, it says that uh, for those who are perishing, um, the cross is foolishness. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I don't want to nerd out too much, but I want to capture the Greek text there. And the perishing and the being saved, those are, those are both um, present, middle, passive verbs. Meaning... It's something that's ongoing, that's happening to you while you're also doing the thing. So you're being saved. It's happening to you, but you're also doing the thing. Or you're perishing. It's happening to you, but you're also doing the thing. So for many of us, that's been the journey in, in faith, is experiencing the cross as power at times, and other times it seems like foolishness. And those times you can say, maybe I was perishing like I was when I had relapsed. Maybe there have been health issues that brought these considerations up or relational tensions, questions of purpose, 
struggles in marriage, difficult family members that you feel forced to love, or loss. And maybe God is calling you to give up something that you've tightly held on to up until that point. And you ask yourself, certainly this can't be power, is it? For Paul, that's exactly where it's at. So we'll move to verses 20 through 25, if anybody would care to read. Verses 20 through 25. So where's the wise philosopher who understands? Where's the expert scholar who comprehends? And where is the skilled debater of our time who could win a debate with God? Hasn't God demonstrated that the wisdom of this world system is utter foolishness? For in his wisdom, God designed that all the world's wisdom would be insufficient to lead people to the discovery of himself. He took great delight in baffling the wisdom of the world by using the simplicity of preaching the story of the cross in order to save those who believe it. For the Jews constantly demand to see miraculous signs, while those who are not Jews constantly cling to the world's wisdom. But we preach the crucified Messiah. The Jews stumble over him, and the rest of the world sees him as foolishness. But for those who have been chosen to follow him, both Jews and Greeks, he is God's mighty power, God's true wisdom, and our Messiah. For the foolish things of God have proven to be wiser than human wisdom, and the feeble things of God have proven to be far more powerful than any human ability. So Paul is pretty, he has a keen sense of his surroundings. He's by no means naive. He knew how a message like Christ crucified would be counterintuitive to the Jews who valued signs and Gentiles who valued wisdom. You see instances like this captured in John chapter 2 where they, they ask him for a sign and Jesus just re- replies to the Jews, uh, just see this temple here, knock it down and it will be rebuilt in, in three days. But he refused to give them a sign in the moment because he knew it was in their hearts, the text says. And the Gentiles, they, they prefer wisdom. And you see this, especially in moments like Acts chapter 17, where Paul's in Athens, and you know they start debating with him <coughs> about this unknown God, and um, are trying to get to him on an intellectual ascent. Like, who is this unknown God? How can you know? But Paul, specifically in this text, is not talking about the people out there who find the message of the cross counterintuitive. He's talking actually about the people within the church at Corinth who are comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. He knows that they're not empty vacuums, that they're actually embedded in a cultural cultural context, and so they have their own predisposition and pre-understandings. And so he, he notes that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, speaking of the people within the church who at this point were dividing over who belongs to who, and the people were becoming elitist and kind of promoting themselves through signs or through, through wisdom. It says, Jews demand signs and Greek look, 
Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here's the issue. Can I suggest to us that all of us at some point in our lives have learned to navigate the world in some way, shape, or form on our own terms? The Bible calls this sin, and it happens for a variety of reasons. For some of us, it was a means of survival. I mean, we grew up with maybe a lack of safety and had to negotiate ways from preventing the most harm. For others, there were a handful of relationships in your life that caused you to shut down and say, never again. I'm not doing that. I'm not putting myself in those circumstances. Still, other of, others of us grew up in perfect families and weren't able to express what we truly felt because it would uh, be counterintuitive and compromise the system. Maybe some of you grew up around addiction, like I did, and you knew that you had to perhaps hide when such and such was drunk um, because you were looking for safety. Or maybe your parents are professional Christians. Maybe you were a PK or MK, so that it made you learn how to perform Christianity on a professional level. Whatever, whatever the case, these ways of negotiating our lives, which seem most intuitive, had le has led to us planting our identities and our stakes in something that isn't Christ. It actually contrasts His work on the cross. We have learned to take matters in our own hands. For Jews, it was signs. For Gentiles, it was wisdom. And the last thing we would want is any sort of disruption or any sort of lack of control. The issue with this is that, the same as those in, in Corinth, is that you fail to show up to who you actually are. You fail to show up for the sake of others. And you fail to show up in what God has planned from the very get-go. This is what's at stake for all of us. Because one way or another, we have learned to negotiate things on our own terms. Whatever the case may be to promote ourselves, to keep ourselves safe, to establish ourselves, or simply because we want to rebel, whatever it may be. And others miss out on us because of it. We miss out on ourselves, others miss out on us, on who we actually are, and more importantly, we're not afforded true connection with God. So if this was at stake, our ability to show up to our lives, to others, and to God, would our way of negotiating our lives up to this point be worth holding on to? Another question is, what has living life in this way actually afforded you? So let's move on. Verses 26 through 31, and anybody able to read that for us? Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So for those moments when I was experiencing loss on the level of, you know, my parents' divorce or this bad breakup I'd gone through or even relationships that were falling through the cracks, I had tried to take matters into my own hands and, and try to hold on as tightly as I could until I realized that I couldn't. And then I, by default, because this is the way that I'd grown up to um, kind of mask the sorts of angst or pain, I just started drinking. I was like, I'm done with this. I'm out. And so this pr proposed a sort of remedy for me. Like, I'm not going to engage in this anymore. And to this, God shows up, and he, he actually provides the only remedy that would work in this situation, the only remedy that would pr propose any sort of hope. And the only remedy is, is, is in the cross. It's that greatest no that would actually enable the truest yes. It's those small surrenders that lead to a big surrender. It's the, it's the carving out of capacity to hope. And hope, like G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, writes, hope is only necessary in the most hopeless situations. You wouldn't need hope if you were in a hopeful situation. It's actually in those moments that the most hope is required, and when, when it's actually hopeless. So Paul, he understands this, and he invites his audience to remember where they were when they were at the feet of the cross in those first moments. For me, it was in that church in Mexico, being at the end of my rope, and just trying to get away from everything, having no idea what to do at that point, being in over my head. For some of us, maybe it was similar circumstances, maybe just as intense. For others, maybe not. That's not the point, because the cross, it just opens the doorway for more surrenders along the way. That first surrender, wh wherever it was, and you could imagine in your own lives, those moments when you really realize, like, I need, I need a savior. I need Christ in my life. I want to devote my life to him. He actually has good intent towards me. Only opens up the door to what can be a progression and a life of many small surrenders. Each part of the way becoming more and more clear with who he is. I always imagine it like a, an onion, like just peeling, peeling back layers so that you can see what's most true about yourself, about others, and about God. And his life was a full display of what that was. He was a full display of what surrender to the will of the Father looked like. He did not fight for his own. In the face of hostility, rather than fear and and take matters into his own hands, he committed himself to the Father. He was given to those around him. He was present enough to even feel the touch of a woman who in the middle of this great crowd just wanted to reach to the hem of his garment to receive healing. And he asked the question, who touched me? And the disciples say, what do you mean who touched you? There's a lot of people around here. And it's like, no, this woman right here touched me. And he turns to her and says, the words that she definitely needed to hear, daughter, your faith has made you whole. He was that present. He was that given to the surroundings. There were probably plenty in that audience or in, in that crowd around him 
who had malintent towards him. We see instances of that in the Gospels over and over again. But he decided to remain that present and that invested. That level of presence to the Father and to those who were around him, it, it seemed counterintuitive even to him at, at, the, at the point of his greatest no. When he prays to the Father and he says, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And again, he repeats this, this seeming dissonance of the counterintuitiveness of the cross while he's on the cross hanging there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he decides to still hold on and take it up with God himself. Because he, if he didn't take it up with God, he would have said, my people, my people, why has my God forsaken me? He takes it up with God himself and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing that he's still placing himself in that, in that dependent relationship even while hanging there on the cross, receiving the greatest no, the greatest disillusionment to his hopes, and the, and, the, and the greatest flattening of anything that would look or resemble hope. There was no other way. This is the only way. This is the only way for all of us. Is to face that no, face the cross. From the moment that you first faced it to those small surrenders along the way, that's the only way that will open you up to something like resurrection. Something like being able to actually be present to the person God intended you to be, the person others need you to be, and the person that he knows you can be. To be able to do the good that you actually want to see in the world. And we see that because he rose. Christ rose. So chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5, can somebody read that as we start wrapping up? So I can only offer you my experience with him. Time and time again, my spirit's been broken. And often I find it quite difficult, even in this season, I struggle to hope. But I hope. And it's not about lesser or greater hope. It's just a matter of having hope. At least it's there, whether it's small or great. I look back on my life and I ask the question, what would I have done differently to maybe produce better outcomes? And I have no idea what the answer to that question is. And I am not convinced that I know a better way at this point, other than the small surrenders that lead to that big surrender. And boy, does that become challenging. The loss of my uncle was devastating to a lot of us. He one day just woke up and he was not feeling well. Um, you know, he ends up in the hospital, immense pain in his intestines. Three days later, he just passed away, and they found that he had some 
something going on that was real bad, maybe an infection of some sort. I want to end with maybe a, maybe a meditative practice. So if you guys would um, place yourself in a posture to just kind of consider some of these things. Maybe it's closing your eyes, maybe it's opening up your hands. If you want to get on your knees, you're welcome to get on your knees. Just consider what are some of the ways that you've learned to negotiate your lives that are perhaps keeping you from showing up. If this is a new question and it's hard, and it's hard to know, maybe just bring it up to the Lord in prayer. Have them hi highlight those things that uh, you've held on to so that you can experience something like greater freedom through the cross. In what ways has this prevented you from being given to others, <coughs> to the Lord? Maybe there's some relationships that are just, they seem too broken to fix at this point. Maybe there are some resentments that, that keep you away from even your own families at times. Maybe your job has you constantly worrying and anxiety, <coughs> having to micromanage everything or else it will all go. Well, there are some things in your life right now that are currently tempting you to take matters into your own hands, to hide, to micromanage, to dominate, to dismiss. Something like health issues. Certainly know that struggle. Tensions in marriage, loss of a loved one, struggles with finances. I invite you guys to come to the cross. Paul says it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you're ready, you can open your eyes and... You know, lately I've been daydreaming about <laughs> after finals going to the beach and just sipping a cup of coffee and reading a book. And I only recently realized how this is exactly where, where Peter was met um, by the Lord. And it's been a tough season. Quite frankly, that's why I say I struggle sometimes to have hope. Because it's been a tough season on my family. It's been a tough season for me personally. Um, lots of things coming into consideration and even just purpose and things like that. But where are those moments where you were met on the beach? Maybe you've had some of those already in your life. Or maybe you would hope for some of those in the future. I invite you guys to pursue that. To have them meet you in those moments. To ask you and answer your questions that maybe you've been asking for a long time. Especially with regards to, this certainly can't be it. The cross makes no sense. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense and it's not supposed to. And that's the power of it. That's where hope comes in. When we're able to put our hands and say, you know what, Lord, I'm at your mercies. 
and you know better than I do. And I can't pretend to know how to take matters into my own hands. Friends, the, the path that runs counter to the cross is exhausting and will tyrannize, it'll tyrannize you into believing that you really know how to get to the most fulfillment. This anxious pursuit of creating a self or to, to maintain things in your own hands, it'll tyrannize you. So lay it all down at the cross and come into his rest because there is resurrection and only here there is hope. The most blessed people are the ones who realize that. It's those who have been bankrupted, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are too meek for anyone to notice. And only there is hope at the bottom. Thank you, guys. Daniel, thanks, thanks for sharing. I mean, I have all my notes that I could preach a sermon on your sermon right now. Um, I'll, 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 I'll share that, but or I'll, I'll skip that. Um, thank you. Uh, so, you know, I think really, and again, notes on notes. Uh, at the end, you know, Paul in verse one through five, it's not our eloquence, it's not our preaching, it's the, it's it's me, it's my life, the power of God. And so to hear, like really, like man, you are you are washed out, you are completely washed out. And you're standing up here preaching the word of God it is the power of God, which really was like, wow, that's that's what Paul's talking about. Exactly. It was a demonstration in word and deed of, of what that whole text was. So that's part of my notes. But I have if you want me to you want me to keep going? Uh, we and then take Eucharist as a remembrance of the power of God of the cross. The cross, you know, for us I think we said this. I think I actually picked this up from Adam, I think. Uh, do you guys put the cross at the center of, of is that at the center of your gathering? Um, the cross we put at the center of our gathering because we believe that everything else is just commentary on what that is, which is the center of the cross. So Brian's going to play some songs. Um, if you want to come up and at some point take the Eucharist, we have wine on the, the, um, the big table, and then there's just grape juice um, on the bottom table, so you can feel free to take either one. But thank you guys. Thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, surprise. Which one? No. Oh. 